0: It's wonderful to be here with all of you. It's a great day because it's the Lord's Day, and we have an opportunity to worship God today in spirit and in truth. As always is the case, I do consider it a privilege to speak concerning the Word of God, and I hope that what we have to consider for a little while this morning would be encouraging to you and edifying to you in some way. Before my introduction, though, I'm just going to put the verses on the screen, and we'll read these. At this time, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning there in verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, here's the reason for the lesson. I usually have a reason. And sometimes people have a question about a passage or whatever, or there's usually a reason that I uh, decide to present something from God's Word. And here's the reason for this lesson. Last Sunday, in between services after lunch, several of us were in a bookstore. And as I was walking through, I always go in a bookstore, I always go to the religious section. And I was going to the religious section, and as I came around the corner, there was a book there right on the end. And the title of the book was saving God from religion. I didn't read the book, but I did pick it up and read a little bit about the book, read the back of it. And then I got home and I Googled the title of the book. And evidently, it was written by a man who did not believe in organized religion. And, you know, really, that is a very prominent position today, where people want to have a relationship with God, but you don't have to be practicing anything religiously. And it really is a very common theory today. And in this book, what he was saying is, he was saying, I don't believe in organized religion. And if you do, and you limit God to organized religion, you're kind of missing the whole point. So he, writing as though he was uh, enlightened on the subject, wrote this book. And he was saying that you don't have to practice Christianity to have the Lord Jesus Christ or God in your life. And, you know, shortly after that, I thought about these passages of Scripture. And Jesus Christ is referred to us as precious. He is the precious cornerstone. Now, I'll just say this by way of introduction. We'll get back to these things in detail in just a moment. But Jesus was the foundation. And those religious leaders, those builders, as Peter calls them, religious leaders that rejected Jesus... They rejected the cornerstone. They rejected the foundation because they didn't believe that Jesus was worthy to be the foundation upon which the house of God would be built. So they rejected Christ. But what we're going to find in these passages, though, is the preciousness of the foundation, and that's Jesus, is equal to the preciousness of the structure built on that foundation, and that's the church. And at the end, we'll prove that these two are one, they are together, and you can't have one without the other. So, as we begin, let me just say, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and those that are saved are his chosen people. By way of an introduction, let me say also, in the beginning portion of 1 Peter chapter 2, and the first three verses, you've heard me preach on this in times past, when I have said that when you obey the gospel... You come from the waters of baptism, you become a Christian, your life just begins and it doesn't end there. It's at the very beginning. You become a child of God. You are born as a child of God, spiritually speaking. And when you do that, you have a threefold responding obligation. Number one, we all have a responding obligation to God, and that is that we serve Him with every fiber of our being. He deserves to be served. He wants to be served. He wants to be worshiped. He has commanded that we do so. So when I come from the waters of baptism, I have a responding obligation, number one, to God. Number two, we also have a responding obligation to each other. The Bible would say that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Thirdly, though, we have a responding obligation to ourselves that we might grow. And in the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes there's a negative side or an aspect and there's a positive side or aspect. The negative side is this. He said you got to cast aside all the negative stuff like evil speaking, envy, jealousy, hypocrisy, all those things. And you do away with those things. But from a positive perspective... You have to feed on the word of God. You have to have a hunger for the word of God that you might grow. Then in verse 3, the tone shifts to the Lord and speaks of his graciousness or his kindness. Then it comes to verse 4. And Peter describes Jesus as a chosen stone. As we look at verse 4 and as we begin, the Bible says they're coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. In this verse, we have a change of figures. And as we break down this passage, let's begin with this phrase right here, coming to him. Now, a couple of foundational passages that show what this means about coming to him. In Luke chapter nine and verse 23, Jesus said this, anyone who desires to come to me must do what? Must deny himself himself, must take up his cross daily and follow me. Second foundational passage is found in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. When the Hebrew writer says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them, get this, that diligently seek him. So when Peter's referring to coming to him or coming to Jesus... It's not specific to the first time one comes to Christ in obedience to the gospel. It's talking about something entirely different. It is actually talking about this. A continual action, a continual reliance on Jesus Christ in the kingdom. Why? Because Jesus is a living stone. And we are ever coming to the stone of life and energy. The Lord is the raised never again to... Uh, die stone last lord's day i think it was carl waited on the table and he said and he was right he said that jesus when he rose from the dead he was he rose from the dead never to die again and therefore has become the first fruits and that's true Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one to ever die and raise again, because there are others in the Bible. Before Jesus did so, they died and they rose again. In fact, Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. So what does it mean? It means this. Every one of those other people that died and were risen from the dead had to die again. Not Jesus. He's not only a foundational stone. He's a living stone. And we continually go to Jesus in a continual action. And we rely on him in the kingdom. He is the source of life and energy. Let me give you some more passages. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. Notice what Jesus is called. He's called a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, and a sure foundation. Now, interestingly, you know Peter who wrote this, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. The word Peter comes from the word petros, and it means fragment or a part of, a stone. Now, we understand this too, that Jesus is a different one though. Jesus is this stone here, a living stone. The word stone there comes from the word lithos, And it means tremendous rock shaped out and fitted for eternity. Why? Because he's a living stone. He was raised never to die again. And we find a source of energy and strength through that. Now, notice what Peter says. This living stone was rejected by men. You know, this is figurative language here. And really, the language is this. If somebody's building something, you know, and you, you come to the stones, and you say, well, this one's worthy of being in it, and this one isn't. And somebody's hastily making those decisions. You know what I thought about? I thought about my old buddy Darrell, my father-in-law, and I remember what he said one time about building fireplaces. Before he was a painter, he was a brick man. He was in the brick trade. And he would tell me about building fireplaces, and he would say, you know what we would do? We would go and we'd have all the materials that would be delivered to the job, but what we would do is we'd take a look at the bricks and we'd very hurriedly and very quickly decide which one was not worthy of being in the fireplace. This one has some blemishes. This one's got a hole in it. This one over here has a chip in it. This one over here has a bad color. And they would make the decision quickly as to what was worthy of being in the structure and what was not. That's the language that's being used here when it comes to Jesus. In fact, the word there literally means to be cast aside, rejected. And just as it was so that building a fireplace, you didn't spend a whole lot of time examining each one. You just briefly made the choice That's what the religious leaders did when it came to Jesus, when they rejected him. They said, wait a minute, he's not worthy of being the foundation on which the house of God will stand, so we'll just cast him aside. Rejected by men. Unworthy. But notice what the Bible says. Peter says, even though he was rejected by men, he was chosen by God and he was precious. You know, the word "precious" is an interesting word. It means to be held in high honor or prized. And you know, I, when I think about this, I think about the Jewish Passover. And I think about the lamb that they had to have for the Passover. And it was one lamb for one house. And it had to be a lamb that was without spot and without blemish. Sounds like something else, doesn't it? It had to be precious. And the reason it was called precious is because it was of high value because those that were precious or those that were without spot and without blemish, they were the ones that were used in the, in the uh, breeding process. So they were precious and held in high honor or very expensive and, and worth a lot. And the reason for that is it represented future life. Jesus, in like fashion is also precious, the precious lamb of God, because he also represents spiritual life. A lamb that was precious, literally physical life. Jesus, from a spiritual perspective, spiritual life. And because there is power in the blood. You know, we used to sing that song all the time. There's power in the blood. The reason there's power in the blood is not only is there life-saving in the blood, but there's also, I'm talking about spiritual life, but also because there is future life in the blood. Notice what he says in verse 5 now. Peter says, you also as living stones. So now the tone's going to change just a little bit. He went back here and he talks about how Jesus is a living stone. And then he says this. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So who is it talking about? It's talking about Christians. It's talking about Christians. They are living stones. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning there in verse 20, listen to this. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Here Paul says this, You are living stones. In Ephesians 2 and verse 20 that we just read, we find that these living stones are in a spiritual house. Now, the spiritual house, a temple, the church makes up the superstructure. I'll get back to that in just a moment. Christians are the temple both individually and collectively. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, listen to what Paul said there. Writing to the young evangelist, Paul said, but if I am delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, what else are we? We're a holy priesthood. Now, under the law of Moses in the Old Testament, the spiritual temple was the nation of Israel, and they had one special chosen Group to officiate from the tribe of Levi. Under the New Testament, though, all Christians constitute a priesthood where every worshiper has access to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. And together, not separately, we constitute a priesthood. Now, may I say this too? We are a kingdom of priests, therefore, we have access to God through Jesus Christ, our high priest. And may I just say this as a little aside? Because we are a kingdom of priests, and we're all the same in that, and all have access to God through Jesus Christ, if you sin, you don't have to call somebody on the phone to pray for you. I don't have to call somebody in the middle of the night and have them pray for me, because I've sinned. As a kingdom of priests, that means all Christians are priests, we pray to God through Jesus Christ. I have access to God through Jesus Christ. We are part of that. We are all a holy priesthood. And what do we do? Together, not separately, we offer spiritual sacrifices. How do we do that? With our lips, our lives, and our worship. Our lips, our lives, and our worship. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. I want to say something about what we say with our lips. And we don't hastily come before God. We do so reverently and respectfully. And may I say this too. And again, you've heard me say this too in the past. When you've been here as long as I have. uh, You've heard a lot of things that I've said over the years. And I have always said, and I still believe that. If the only time that you pray. Is when we assemble or when you're going to eat. Or maybe even when you're going to go to bed at night. That's not enough. That's not being instant in prayer. Being ready to pray all the time. We have a wonderful relationship with God. Let's use the blessing. And we as a kingdom of priests can go before God. And you know what we get to do? We get to sing praises or say praises to God. And what else? Giving thanks to his name. And may I also suggest that God is worthy of your prayers and your praise and your thanksgiving even if you have a lot of bad stuff going on in your life. Even if the circumstances of your life are really negative and awful, God is still worthy to be praised. When something bad happens, he's worthy to be praised. When something bad or negative happens in your life, he's worthy to be thanked for all that you've been blessed with. And just maybe, too, just maybe, we spend a lot of time, and maybe too much time, asking for relief instead of asking for strength to get through and endure. And just maybe, we don't thank him for the trial that life has brought our way that's made us better and stronger for the future. Regardless of your circumstances, oh, we praise God with our lips. We do so absolutely, and we give thanks to his name. And I'm going to say one more thing about this, then we're going to go to our next passage. When you say praise God, those words praise God, you have to mean those very words. It's not something that you just say flippantly in passing, well, praise God. I know people, you do too, that as part of their vernacular, as part of their regular Uh, they're always saying, praise God, praise God, praise God. You know, it's a wonderful thing to praise God. But ask yourself, if you're saying praise God all the time, are you really praising God or is it just something that you say? Because if it's something that you say with no meaning, you can take something that is wonderful and make it insignificant because there's no meaning or feeling or heart behind So, is God worthy? Absolutely. Of our praise and our thanksgiving. But more than that, how about Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2? Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, not only do we come to Him and honor Him with our lips of praise and thanksgiving, but even our bodies are a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God. You know, that's more than just worship. We have come together today in worship. But this is more than just worship. You're presenting your bodies a living sacrifice. That means in your daily life, your daily walk of life. Now, how are you going to do it? I like passages that give us specifics and practical ways to do what the Word of God tells us we must do. So what Paul says is, he said, you present your body as a living sacrifice. Be holy, acceptable to God. And you know what? It's not something that you deserve extra credit for because, actually, it's your reasonable service. You know why? Because that's how great God is. It's your reasonable service. Then, don't be conformed to this world. This is how you're going to do it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's no other way to do that than through the Word of God. That's how you constantly renew your mind. That you're in the Word of God all the time, you're studying the Word of God, you're reading the Word of God, and it's changing how you are. And then you can show that you have proven that you, what is acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, what else? Jesus is our high priest. Okay? He's our high priest. As we mentioned just a moment ago, we are members of the church, are a kingdom of priests. In First in Peter chapter 2, now in verse 6, notice. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So, notice this phrase here, also contained in the scripture. I'm talking about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And what do we find? Well, first of all, we find that Jesus Christ, what's contained in the scripture, is the foundation. He's the foundation. Isaiah 28 and 16, once again. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Another passage, Romans 9 and 33. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. All right. Jesus is a cornerstone. What is that? We know what that is. A cornerstone is something that unites two different walls. It brings them together. Two different walls. It's the Jesus is the chief of the corner. He's the chief cornerstone. Now, the two walls were Jew and Gentile. And this is really beautiful here. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, it tells us, as I paraphrase, that it always existed in the mind or plan of God that both Jew and Gentile alike would be in one body, the church. And all of those Old Testament prophets, they were not given the right. They were not given the blessing. They were not given the favor in describing what the mystery was. In fact, in Ephesians chapter three, it says the mystery was that Jew and Gentile alike would be in the church together as one body, as one of God's people, all one in Christ Jesus. And that Jew and Gentile would be in one body and it would be made known through the church. Also, we find that it was laid in Zion. This is the foundation, again, Jesus was, uh, was tried and laid in Zion. That's the foundation. Now, we also find in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, let me just read a few of these passages to you. This is very beautiful in, in that Jew and Gentile are the great people of God now. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul said, "...the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling." What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Okay, now verses 22 and 23. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, when Jesus says, no man comes unto the father except by or through me. The only way you can go through Jesus Christ is to be in his body. The Bible says that his body is the church. So the structure that's built on the foundation does matter, does it not? It's the body of Christ. We must come to God through Jesus Christ. The only way you can do that is through his body. The only way you can do that is be in his church. But there's more. Zion was to be and indeed the place where the stone was tried and laid. Hebrews 5 and 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered... And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation, get this, to all those that obey him. What are we talking about? We're talking about that in Jerusalem it would all happen. When Jesus died on the cross, the old law, he took the old law of Moses and he nailed it to his cross. And we are no longer under the old law of Moses. But in Zion, in Zion, in Jerusalem... On the day of Pentecost. Because of Jesus, what Jesus did with his death, burial, and resurrection. And when the Holy Spirit came to those apostles to preach that very first gospel sermon with the opportunity to respond. Jew and Gentile alike now have access to one body. That's the church. And that would be God's people. What a great eternal blessing that is. And that opened the door of one faith. What else is Jesus called? He's called the elect. And that literally means, uh, from the Greek word, to be picked out and chosen. He is precious, as we mentioned just a moment ago, to be held in honor, a great value. He is dear to us. Okay. Also, though, in verse 6, as we just read a moment ago, listen to this. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame, or the King James says, confounded. It was important for the Apostle Peter, and it's important for us today. You know, they were suffering great persecutions as being a Christian. And I just want to make a point about a little comparison here. These Christians were undergoing tremendous persecution Oh, about four years or so, scholars tell us, before the destruction of Jerusalem. By the way, that's why the Hebrew letter written to Hebrew Christians was to encourage them because the day approaching was the destruction of Jerusalem. And they would have some horrible persecutions. And the persecutions were so great that many of them turned their back on Jesus and went back to the laws of Moses. Because after all, there was no persecution if they did that. So the writer of Hebrews is telling them, don't do that, hang in there, keep in there every step of the way. As you see that day approaching, the persecutions coming upon them. Well, guess what? Peter's writing to the same kind of people that had tremendous persecutions. So let me just say, we don't have persecutions like that today. Okay? And even with COVID and all that, we we were not persecuted. You've heard me say we were inconvenienced. There may come a time though, when we're persecuted in life. There there may come a time. We pray that's not the case, but it may happen. It may be that we are persecuted like they were persecuted very strongly. But even if we're not, here's the similarity. As they had tremendous persecution, the Christian today has trials. But there's a great promise. I love this promise. The promise that Peter is giving is this. Whether it's, great persecution, or whether it's just a trial, we will never be put to shame for trusting Jesus. Ever. We will never be put to shame for trusting Jesus. You know, sometimes we want to have the trial removed. You know, but Peter also says, the trying of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes. When you have a tremendous trial in your life, it's doing some positive things. If you'll just look, and I will do the same, and I'll just look and be honest with it. Sometimes these trials are making us better and stronger for the future. In fact, that's what patience is. Let it have its perfect work. And it's difficult sometimes, and it's hard sometimes. But you know what it's doing? It's polishing us. It's refining us. It's the fire that hardens the clay and not just melting the wax. That's what the trial is. What else? Here's another great blessing, great benefit. It's proving to us or putting on trial our faith. And sometimes life has a way of putting our faith on trial. And when we do that and when we persevere, you know what we get to prove? We prove that our faith was as it should be. It's exactly what it should be. And you know what that is? That's more precious than gold. Another benefit, when you hold up and you don't chicken out and you don't quit and you don't back off and, and you're going through a difficult thing and everybody that knows you knows you're a Christian, but you don't blame God and you don't quit, guess what? God gets the glory immediately. He gets the praise. Everybody knows that's why you stood strong in the face of adversity because you're a Christian and God gets the glory Secondly, Peter would also tell us in another passage, we'll have a reward in heaven one day too. And it will be worth it all. But you will never, ever be put to shame for trusting Jesus. All right. Now we shift. If there's a foundation, a cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He's the elect. He is precious. If there's a foundation, there has to be a superstructure there has to be or else it's just a slab just a foundation notice in first peter chapter 2 and verse 7 therefore to you who believe he's precious but to those who are disobedient the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone so what he says at the beginning of that passage is you who believe he is precious to you who believe he is precious there is a superstructure Now, what is that? What is a superstructure? Obviously, it's that which is built on top of something else. That is the superstructure that is built on the foundation. Notice this too. If that's the case, then the foundation and the superstructure are one. Okay? You get this. You go build a house. You pour a slab. Okay? You pour a slab. You build, you frame it. You build the walls. From that point forward, after the slab is poured and the structure is being built, the slab and the structure are now described as one. All one. The foundation and the superstructure are one. The same is true with Jesus and the church. The foundation and the superstructure are one. You can't have one without the other. Notice foundation jesus christ structure is the church now let me also say this too because this is important too if somebody would say well how really important is the church and how important is it that i practice christianity in my life as a christian can't i just have a relationship with jesus can't i just have that because after all jesus was precious Absolutely, held in high value, died for my sins. All that's true. Notice, the foundation is Jesus Christ. The structure is the church. We've already learned that the foundation or Jesus Christ was hand-selected by God and is precious, held in high value. If they're one, that means this, that as precious as Jesus is, it's equal to the preciousness of the structure, which is the church. That means that the structure... The church is also equally precious. All right. But then Peter says this to those who uh, are disobedient. And in this passage here, the word disobedient is used against the word belief. Now, a person might say, now, wait a minute. What does belief have to do with obedience? One scholar said it this way. I thought this was great. I just, here's a direct quote. Because faith is more than intellectual assent. Faith or the absence of it is is evidenced in the life. It's evidenced in the life. In fact, the word belief or believe in the Bible literally means having the force to obey. Sometimes people say, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. But being a believer doesn't just mean I believe in God. And it doesn't mean I just believe in Jesus Christ. Being a believer means that you have, it has the force to obey. That's what Jesus said in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The word belief there is having a belief that has the force to obey. In other words, practically, I find out in the word of God what Jesus has done for me. I find out in the word of God what Jesus wants me to do in my life. I believe it so strongly that I'm willing to obey. That begins with your obedience to the gospel. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. But not just that. Your life is transformed and you begin as a baby in Christ. And you start to serve God all the days of your life. You believe so much, it has the force to obey. That's what that means. Now, in verse 7. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the stone that the builders rejected, they rejected Jesus because they rejected him as the foundation. Okay? But please get this if you reject the structure, and that's the church. You also reject the foundation. You know why? Because the foundation and the structure are one. Equally precious. And you can't have one without the other. Great blessings to be a child of God. Peter said that even though the Jews, the builders there, rejected Jesus as being unworthy. And by the way, this is, this is also very powerful. Peter says, God made him the chief cornerstone. In other words, God will not be thwarted. His plans will not be thwarted. And by the way, whether I believe it or not has nothing to do with whether it's true. If a person doesn't believe it, it doesn't mean it's not true or didn't happen. And just because the builders rejected Jesus as being the foundation doesn't mean that he isn't because he is. God selected him. God elected him. And he is precious. In Matthew 16 and 18. Very familiar passage. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So. To have Jesus the foundation. You got to have the structure. And that's the church. And remember once again. The preciousness of the foundation. Is equal to the preciousness of the structure. In closing and I'm finished. I know. I know. That a lot of times people want to remove the religious aspect of a person's life. And a lot of times that's just because they don't want to be committed to anything. Or they don't want to have to do anything. I think that's really a sign of the times with the way things are in general. People want the benefit without the work. Right? That's what they want. I remember when I was going to the gym all the time years ago. And there was this supplement. If you take this, you can lose weight. If you take this pill, you can do this. If you, all these shortcuts. And the idea was, I want the benefit now. But I'm not willing to do anything. That is not a religious, that is not a scriptural position when it comes to your salvation. we got work to do. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Jesus was tried and laid in Zion. In Jerusalem, the church was established. And as precious as Jesus is, is as precious as the church is, there's no salvation outside the body of Christ. So my question is this today. Are you a Christian? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? That precious blood that gives spiritual life. The blood of Jesus that will wash your sins away. The same blood of Jesus that once you contact that blood at baptism, Jesus will add you to his church. That's the superstructure that sits on the foundation. All one. All at the same time. If you've never obeyed the gospel, please do that today. We'll assist you in that. We would love to do that. Come believing in Jesus with the force to obey. Repent of your sins. Make a change in your mind. I want to serve Jesus today. I want to change my life. Be willing to confess the precious name of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Rise to walk in newness of life and let Jesus add you to that superstructure being the church. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail,